Cause we got the alternative energy right. nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne On the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people And broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network My name is Mara Today we speak with Jeff Williams from Arpanza, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, to get his perspective on the government's clean-up after the atomic bomb tests at Maralinga. He was on the ground for some of these clean-ups and gives us his first-hand account. He also talks to us about Australia's capacity to rehabilitate contaminated sites. Then we'll hear from Friends of the Earth's Dr Jim Green to get his thoughts on how the clean-ups have been. First up, we speak to Jeff. Yes, um, my name is Jeff Williams. I work at Apanza, and um, prior to Apanza, we were known as the Australian Radiation Laboratory, and that's how I got involved with Maralinga. And tell me about your experience at Maralinga, and what was your role there? We were told to go and do a final um, inspection of Maralinga prior to the South Australian government handing the lands back to the Maralinga Aborigines or the Maralinga Jaracha as they are known. And so we thought it was going to be a routine, just um, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, proving that the British cleanup, um, the final British cleanup, it was called Operation Brumby, happened in 1967, uh, was satisfactory as the British had told Australia. And it was on that trip, May of 1984, that we actually uh, discovered the plutonium particles, hotspots as they were called at the time, um, which was not part of what we understood. It was totally unexpected to find hotspots of plutonium. And I remember uh, fi uh, finding this particular hotspot. The monitor was very quiet as you walked across the ground, da -da 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 -da, and all of a sudden, uh, as you walked across a hotspot, it'd go, da -da -da and um, we uh, separated the soil, binary separations, until we got down to a tiny little particle. I remember holding it in my left hand and put the monitor on it and realised, well, that's plutonium that uh, I've got in my hand. And uh, plutonium uh, is a little bit scary, of course, because uh, we know that it's um, not only radioactive, but it's uh, very, uh, very toxic. And um, so we realised finding this particular hotspot and then eventually on that day we found probably half a dozen others and we realised well this is very different from what the records say that uh, the site's been remediated and left in a state that it could be handed back to the Maralinga uh, Aborigines. Canberra was advised, um, it led to quite a political uh, storm which culminated in the Royal Commission um, investigating the British nuclear tests in Australia and out of that came um, a request to the British to, eventually they agreed to fund a further cleanup, and um, our laboratory, the Australian Radiation Laboratory in, the, in those days was very much involved in defining the extent of the cleanup and the parameters for uh, this uh, proper cleanup of the Maralinga site so that the land could be safe uh, for the Aborigines to take um, uh, ownership of the land again. And what's your assessment of the clean-up there, or clean-ups? 
Okay, well, there were three cleanups done by the British. Uh, the first one, I think, was just called Operation Cleanup. It was just during the um, time when the British were using the Maralinga Range for testing, and they uh, had finished one test series and cleaned it up, and uh, uh, in order that when they came back, it was uh, basically ready to start again. And then Operation Hercules was a slightly bigger one, and then Operation mm -hmm. Brumby, which was their final cleanup. And the, the three British cleanups obviously um, left contamination. So we undertook a cleanup which went from 1994 to um, 2000, so over six years. Our laboratory, the ARL, it still was in those days, Australian Radiation Laboratory. Um, we basically drove the cleanup in terms of the radiation safety standards and and uh, ensured that everything that, all the decisions that we took in terms of setting the standards for the cleanup and how the cleanup was to be conducted uh, were driven by the Maralinga Aborigines themselves, which ensured the success of what was done in those years. So that now, um, after the cleanup, and I was involved, I was the project manager for the auditing of the environmental auditing as the cleanup went along, ensuring that it met the standards. We ensured that the cleanup was done to a very high standard. The level that was set, it's a technical um, figure, five millisievert per annum. Because we used very conservative calculations in estimating where the boundary for that uh, five millisievert per annum uh, cleanup boundary should be, um, the cleanup itself actually achieved way better than that. So the, the level of uh, plutonium contamination and uranium contamination that remained after the cleanup uh, was around about the figure um, that we consider typical for background levels throughout Australia. Some places would be slightly higher, some places slightly lower. But Maralinga background now um, for somebody who just visits the site, doesn't engage in soil raising activities, doesn't dig, obviously in the burial trench because the plutonium's been buried on site and uh, those burial pits, well, they're going to contain the plutonium for many thousands of years. So they have to be maintained, uh, the memory kept and uh, ensured that um, people don't intrude into those burial pits. But apart from that, the surface area, the um, beautiful sand dunes and the, um, uh, the bushland and the animal and bird life that's out there uh, for the Aborigines, they, um, my, my assessment is that they can have full access to that site and uh, enjoy the site um, and basically uh, have control of it. So Jeff, how do you know that the um, ass site assessment and monitoring at Maralinga has been compre comprehensive enough that you've found everything that's there and you know the full picture? So basically, when we went out there, we had no security clearances. That was a deliberate decision of the uh, director of uh, ARL, Dr. Keith Logan. So that what we found, um, we were not bound to keep it secret. We were able to publish uh, openly and uh, talk openly about what we found. And that was a really important decision as it turned out. So the British were testing nuclear weapons. So there was a tremendous amount of secrecy. British reports were labeled atomic top secret and uh, obviously not for our eyes. 
And I think the other fascinating thing about Maralinga to remember is it's the only nuclear weapons test site in the world um, that is no longer under military control but was relinquished into civilian control. So we went out there as civilians. Um, we had very little knowledge or background of what the British had done. So we were really like detectives. We had maps and the maps had marked on them all these intriguing uh, little uh, sites with, with strange names. There was Dobo and Weewak, uh, Kittens, Lanes, um, Naya, and at all of these different tests were conducted. So what were those tests? It was important for us to discover what the British had done in the absence of reading the top secret reports and knowing what these top secret nuclear tests had been to develop the British nuclear uh, weapon, the British atomic bomb. As a result of understanding what had been done, we were able to determine what was the contamination and the extent of it. Uh, in fact, it was an ABC journalist, um, Jane Figgis, um, science bookshop with the ABC, and she coined the phrase nuclear archaeology for what mm -hmm. we were doing. So we were out there with our monitors, but we also brought samples back to the laboratory for very sensitive high resolution detection. And we found isotopes that really in the field you, you wouldn't have seen, you would have overlooked traces of things. And what we found was if we asked the British what they did, we were given a very, at a particular site, say at the kitten site, we'd get a very superficial answer of, of little use. But if we did the measurements, and then we, with knowledge, we went back to the British and we said, we have found scandium-46, for instance, a radioactive isotope, at this site. Then, from them knowing that we knew something in detail about the site, they would venture more information. So we had to find the knowledge and then using that knowledge to go to the British to prompt them to give us the answer. And eventually, uh, over quite a few years, really getting a feel for all of the testing that the British had done by this nuclear archaeology that we were doing to actually discover what they'd done and hence what the extent of the contamination was to be sure that when we did go do the remediation, the cleanup, um, that in fact nothing had been missed. Um, so there's a lot of contaminated sites <coughs> scattered ar around Australia. Uh, can you comment on Australia's ability to rehabilitate these sites and um, maybe why they're left in the state they are at the moment? Okay, well I guess Mara, you're referring to sites, uh, legacy, legacy sites, sites from, yeah. Yeah, from uranium mining. And of course, uranium mining, well, well, just like the British testing, in the British testing, uh, it was actually exploding components of an atom bomb. Um, so you're spreading uranium and plutonium to the environment, uh, to the local environment. And um, that's the source of the contamination. Mm. With uranium mining, you're digging uranium up out of the ground. Leftovers, the, um, after you extract the uranium that's of commercial value, uh, what you're left with is the uranium tailings. That's a potential source of contamination to the environment. Uh, it's, it's often very difficult to know how to actually remediate such a site. So current 
international standards for uranium mining ensure that we don't create such a mess from the outset. Mm. So the, um, the, the mining residues that are of not commercial value are actually managed in a way that they're not going to cause a legacy problem uh, into the future. But of course, as you point out rightly, we've got all these legacy sites. Many of them were boutique uranium mines in the Northern Territory, Queensland, Western Australia, uh, South Australia. Often uh, now, um, sort of 40, 50 years down the track, there isn't the original mining company um, to, uh, in, to force someone to, who's um, used the site to clean it up. It can be very costly and it's also rather difficult to know how you go about it and where you put the residues once you've um, basically remediated the area, you, you're always going to end up with uh, some remaining material. It Ultimately, it needs to be disposed of safely into the in, into a uh, place in the ground, a um, uh, disposal site. So yeah, we've got all this waste that we need to deal with and it needs to be dealt with responsibly and for a long, long time and meantime, produce less or none? Yes, I guess in terms of disposal um, for uh, legacy waste from mining sites, uh, one option is to uh, collect it all up and uh, develop a either a centralised disposal site, which is basically a hole in the ground, uh, and put the waste in. So it, it, it ends up to be a problem like dealing with industrial waste mm. um, and you need a site where you can dispose of that safely. Um, in the case of uranium, it's very long half-life, so you need to have um, fairly stringent controls on the concentrations that you put back into the ground. Do you think the technology or capacity to rehabilitate a site to an adequate level exists? Like, is it possible? Oh, it exists. Um, it's just a very costly exercise, mm, and it really does require both the will to do it yeah. and, of course, the money. And if the company who was responsible um, for the mining operation, say, 50, 60 years ago, is no longer around, then it, it falls, falls on to the, the taxpayer. Falls to the taxpayer, yeah. yeah. Mm. Excellent. So in future, we need to make sure that companies are um, made to clean up yeah, the current, they current licensing uh, requirements yeah. uh, include that... Um, there be money uh, put aside as the mining operation goes along uh, to fund um, the proper rehabilitation. The stuff that's taken out of the ground, um, the, um, it's uh, treated to obtain the commercial product, case yellow cake, which is sold overseas. The residues uh, are then put back in the ground where they came from in a safe way. And um, that can obviously require money at the end of the operation and current licensing is to um, ensure that that money is um, saved during the operation so it's available at the end of the operation. But that wasn't always the case in the past. I think Australia's really um, moved very strongly towards um, uh, following international best practice in, in this area. It's very important for our PANZA to ensure that the Australian standards um, are adequate and follow best practice. Thanks so much for your time today, Jeff. We really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks, Mara. 
You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We just heard from Jeff Williams from Arpanza and got his perspective on the various attempts to clean up the contamination from the atomic bomb test at Maralinga in South Australia. Now we'll hear from Dr Jim Green from Friends of the Earth to get his thoughts on the issue. Hi Jim, thanks for joining us on today's show. Yeah, that's a pleasure, Mara. Uh, so we've just heard from Jeff Williams, who's an environmental scientist at Panza, about the clean-up at Maralinga. What's your t- take on the clean-up there? Well, pretty much the opposite. I would say that it was handled appallingly from from start to finish, and it got worse as it went on. And one of the fascinating things about this clean-up is that we know so much about it, uh, in particular because of one person who worked on the project and then became a whistleblower, and his name is Alan Parkinson. So for anyone who wants to find out more details about uh, this clean-up of Maralinga, a really good way to start is to go to YouTube and do a search for Alan Parkinson because he's put put a whole lot of videos up there with information plus the photos plus the videos. So it's a fascinating insider's look at the project, and uh, Parkinson worked on the first half of the project, but he quit because the government was clearly trying to do the whole project on the cheap and they were ignoring his advice. So instead of accepting his advice and doing the clean-up properly, they simply sacked him. Um, and the sorts of language that Alan Parkinson uses is he says that the clean-up of Maralinga was uh, a cheap and nasty solution that wouldn't be adopted on Whitefellas land. And he's not the only insider scientist who has complained. There's another one called uh, Dale Timmons who was involved in the vitrification of waste at Maralinga and he said that the government's technical report was littered with gross misinformation, quote-unquote. And uh, Jeff Williams, who you've just heard from, he said in, a, in an email to Alan Parkinson, which was subsequently leaked to the media, he said that the clean-up was beset by a host of indiscretions, shortcuts and cover-ups. And to give one more example of an insider scientist who uh, later complained, uh, Professor Peter Johnston, who was then at Melbourne University and is now with the regulator Arpanza, he said there was, and I quote, there were very large expenditures and significant hazards revolting, resulting from the deficient management of the project by the department, end quote. Um, so they're not just a few quotes, but there's a vast amount, amount of literature to back up to back up those concerns. It was handled appallingly, as I say. And where do you think it's at now? Do you think it has been rehabilitated to a reasonable standard? No, it's definitely better than it was. There's no doubt about that. But they spent over $100 million on this on the latest clean-up. Uh, it's probably you, you probably call it the fourth cleanup, but they could have done a whole lot better with that amount of money, or, or better still, they could have allocated more money and, and really completed the cleanup and done it properly. It's never going to be a greenfield site with no contamination whatsoever. That's not technically possible to do that, but they could certainly have done a lot better. So. As things stand, there's too much surface contamination. About 85% of the plutonium uh, is still on the surface. That's the really tricky part because it's uh, technically and economically impossible to to completely resolve that problem. But uh, the remaining 15% of the plutonium is is, uh, buried underground, but it's shallow burial in unlined trenches in totally unsuitable geology. 
And whereas the government and even the so-called regulator, Arpanza, will say that that's world's best practice, in fact, it's a clear breach of Australian standards. And as these people know, it's not world's best practice at all. It's a, It certainly would not be tolerated in the UK or the USA and in various other countries, so it doesn't even come close to being world's best practice, no, no matter how loosely you define that fairly vague term. Mm, so do you do think that there's um, an element of radioactive racism here? Yeah, well, from start to finish, I mean, we don't have time to go into the history of the bomb test, but the way that Aboriginal people were treated was just outrageous, the uh, amount of contamination that they were subjected to uh, very superficial efforts to warn them of impending bomb tests, forcing people off their land into what were effectively prison camps. It's just horrendous. But that radioactive racism has followed through to the bomb tests. And uh, to give one example, Senator Nick Minchin, who was the responsible minister back in the year 2000, uh, he said that the traditional owners had agreed to deep burial of the plutonium-contaminated waste, but that's just a blatant lie twice over because, firstly, it wasn't deep burial, no matter how loose the definition, it's just a few metres below the surface. And secondly, the Jarretcher traditional owners absolutely did not agree to shallow burial of this plutonium-contaminated waste. In fact, they explicitly wrote to the minister distancing themselves from that decision. And whereas the traditional owners were included in an advisory committee uh, to advise on the, on the handling of this clean-up, um, when it came to the important cost-cutting decisions, like abandoning vitrification in favour of shallow burial, they were explicitly excluded from those decisions, so their input was tokenistic at best, and at worst they were just completely ignored so the government could uh, wipe, it, wipe its hands of this whole process. And one more point to make there of, of many is that at the start of this project, as you can find a Commonwealth government, government document dated 1996 that said uh, that the government's aim of this whole project was to resolve the Commonwealth of any future liability for the project. And I think that's so important to understand that the aim of the project was not to... Uh, finally give some justice and some clean land to the traditional owners. It was simply for the Commonwealth to wipe its hands of any future economic liability. So that really underpinned the whole project. It's just that effort to absolve the Commonwealth of any future liability for the, for the contaminated site. Wow. Um, just going back to vitrification, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, the aim was to uh, to use this electrolytic process to convert the waste into solid glass-like blocks, um, huge things that weighed some tonnes. So you're talking about some heavy-duty machinery. Um, I wouldn't say it was experimental in that it had been tried before, but you wouldn't say that it's, there's a whole lot of worldwide experience with this technology. Uh, but anyway, they tested the vitrification technology in Adelaide and then they took the equipment up to Maralinga and uh, generally it was doing what was asked of it, turning uh, contaminate, plutonium-contaminated waste into, into glass monoliths, uh, which were relatively safe. Um, but then at one stage there was an explosion, and the cause of that explosion are the subject of ongoing debates, but it was probably some of the, uh, the crap that the British left inside the disposal pits when they were there 50 years ago. 
And uh, anyway, the federal government was on a huge cost-cutting exercise at the time, so they used that explosion as a reason to give up on vitrification altogether, which was not the advice they were getting from the technical experts, and it wasn't supported by the traditional owners, but the government decided to uh, give up on vitrification, so that's when they moved from uh, from vitrification to shallow burial in uh, in unlined trenches in totally unsuitable geology. And just to prove how spectacularly incompetent the federal government was, um, they also decided to break up the glass monolith. And don't ask me why they did that, because it was just absurd and completely illogical and clearly increased the hazards, but that's what they did and that's where we're at now. And there was a fascinating report in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2011, which uh, they got hold of uh, government documents and they found that 19 out of the 85 disposal pits with this uh, contaminated waste in it, 19 out of the 85 pits have already been subject to erosion and subsidence. So this is barely a decade after the last so-called clean-up of Maralinga. And, you know, the half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years. So the fourth clean-up of Maralinga was in the late 90s, but there will definitely be a fifth clean-up and probably a sixth clean-up, and we just hope that some future government finally gets it right. Oh, and the poor traditional owners have got not a lot of chance of going back to their lands in a restored way. Yeah, that's right, and there was a ceremony at the site where the land was handed back to the traditional owners, and that was portrayed as an act of reconciliation and and belated justice for the for the traditional owners, but it goes back to that point I made earlier. It's really just the government wiping their hands off it and absolving themselves of any uh, any future economic liability for the residual contamination. Thank you for giving us a good insight into the non-government um, view on the so-called clean-ups there and, you know, just reinforcing the fact that we should leave it in the ground and not cause the contamination to happen in the first place and no more bomb tests. Absolutely. Thanks, Dara. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you to Jeff Williams from Arpanza and Dr Jim Green from Friends of the Earth for joining us on today's show. Australia does not have a great history in the clean-up of contaminated sites. The contamination from radiation at Maralinga has displaced and caused serious illness to the area's traditional owners. Plutonium is buried in pits there, which means that it needs to be looked after for a very long time to prevent people from digging it up. The area may be rehabilitated to government standards, but clearly this is nowhere near the standard the area was at prior to the bomb test that the British undertook. This has serious impacts on the ability of the traditional owners of the area, the Maralinga Jaracha, to use their traditional lands. In a future radioactive show, we'll speak to survivors of the Maralinga bomb test and hear their side of the story. The longevity of the contamination and severity of the impacts means that the poisoning of land and people from all aspects of the nuclear industry must be kept to a minimum and preferably eliminated entirely. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at www.3cr.org.au slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced in the studios of 3CR with support from Friends of the Earth on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Fitzroy, Victoria and is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues. 
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.